Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. And today we're talking about complicity. I was thinking about complicity, Laura, and thinking about how when we think about that word, we think about complicity with violence or illegal activities, or we think about another term, which is accomplice, right, which also comes from complicity. Um, When you were thinking about this episode, where did you start thinking about complicity? I think I mostly thought about it in terms of people not speaking up. So like, I mostly read complicity as silence or not saying anything if you know someone is acting unethically or being like a willing participant. I think I think a lot of us are complicit in a lot of like things that we think are unethical, um, whether that's intentional or not. But I thought of it as like a really widespread common thing, unless in that like criminal <laughs> definition. As a race and gender scholar, I was thinking about how racism is the status quo. White supremacy is the status quo. Anti-blackness is the status quo. You know, coloniality is the status quo and about how white people are comfortable with that. And that comfort is a sign of complicity and that people who make things uncomfortable are seen as enemies of the status quo because they are pointing out complicity and ways to disrupt it. So I agree with that. I was also thinking a lot about capitalism and what it means to be complicit with capital because, you know, I think a lot about how people fantasize, especially on the left, about being outside of capital, even though that's not a serious proposition, certainly for middle-class people. And so I was thinking a lot about what it means to be complicit with capital, what it means to, you know, wear clothes that are made in sweatshops, what it means to eat food that's picked by unorganized workers who don't have unions, what it means to traffic in plastics and petrochemicals. And, you know, the list is sort of endless about ways in which we are complicit in not just exploitation and abuse of workers, which certainly I'm gesturing towards, but also environmental degradation and abuse of the land uh, as well. I mean, I, I think about Amazon as the ultimate place where most people are complicit. Like I think something like over half the U S population has an Amazon prime subscription, which is basically like and the other half use somebody else's. Yeah. yeah. I mean the tactics that Amazon has used to grow to the size that has are definitely anti-competitive and arguably unethical. And we are subscribed <laughs> to get items delivered to our door in two days or less from that company. So, I mean, and the the degree to which it fundamentally hurts our economy and fundamentally hurts the environment is, it's really complicated, but it's so insidious because like, it's so tied to that material comfort. Like people just expect to be able to have something arrive at their doors now within two days And like that is really hard to disentangle from the worker exploitation, the anti-union sentiments. It's really hard to untangle from how hard it is to compete in this economy. Like as a supplier, that bottoming out of prices is pushing so many competitors out of the market, which is really actually quite bad for our economy in a way that is like really hard to understand when you just say low prices are better, right? Like there's just that like blanket assumption. Well, I was thinking as I drove up, cause we were recording this episode the day after small business Saturday, right. And two days after black Friday. 
And I put in an order last night for our local independent bookstore for a bunch of pre-orders. So I try and pre-order all of the books that are coming out through independent bookstores, especially because the price is the same. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to get like a deal for that pre-ordered book. And that also helps them manage cash flow after the holidays. So I went through my wish list and I sent an email and was like, can you order all these books? And I'm just thinking about the effort that that took, but also the value that it had. And I say it not to virtue signal, except to like problem solve, right? Like there are ways that we can manage our expectations and our desires and do a little bit of executive functioning work, right? (laughs) To like delay gratification in ways that are certainly more ethical. But thinking through monopolies as a form of massive complicity as force adding complicity, I think is a good place to think through capitalism and its role. I was thinking too about Ponzi schemes. Like I was thinking about Enron, obviously, because we lived through that crash and it was terrible. And I was thinking about crypto, which is, I think, like the Tupperware for bros, right? Like they really think it's going to pay out with their hearts. And about the way in which those Ponzi schemes produce like a gratification paradigm that is insatiable and how the insatiability of consumption is what complicity forms around in terms of, you know, consumption itself. The bankruptcy of FTX, the crypto exchange in the last couple of weeks has been, I mean, I think it's a real condemnation of like venture capital and their investment. Vulture capital. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, the lack of oversight. Uh, I mean, like this happened too with Theranos, although there were a lot more private investors. And I think there was like this belief among venture capital that they were too smart to get involved in. Theranos, there was a lot of like self-congratulatory, like we didn't fall for it, but Henry Kissinger did, right? So uh, plenty of other private investors didn't ask the right questions. And in this case, FTX, I, I think Theranos, I think had liabilities of less than 900 million. FTX lost like 2.5 billion, right? So like the scale of this is enormous and the lack of oversight, there was no, there was no accountant. <laughs> So the fact that, I mean, venture capital firms put money into a a company that didn't have like an actual CPA or CMA, like, I mean, I think part of it is there wasn't a lot of money at stake relatively for those, like a couple hundred million dollars is nothing to the venture capital firms. But I think there's like this general sense that like risk taking has like the potential to pay out a lot and it's generating a lot of lack of regulatory oversight, which I mean, a lot of private investors lost their money with FTX, right? And the venture capital firms like are going to be fine. Uh, So it creates this like really volatile (laughs) environment that the people who don't lose their shirts could have done something or like ask better questions. And because they're trusted as institutions that make generally good decisions about money and are supposed to do due diligence. Private investors use that as a signal to say like, well, Sequoia Capital invested in this company. So like they did their due diligence. We're assuming everything is good. (laughs) And so it just creates a lot of mismatched information. But it's also so white. This is a white architecture of demand and prestige and gratification 
that surrounds thresholds for risks that white people can absorb because they have sucked so much wealth out of communities. So there's no way to read Ponzi schemes and monopolies as something other than white supremacy in action. It just seems to me that, especially in this moment where Trump is trying to have a comeback, his mafia capitalism is also directly tied to this. You know, we're watching all of these junior people flip on him, right? And some get pardons for flipping on him. The Trump empire is an entire Ponzi scheme built off of grandiose promises of white supremacy, white power. Yeah, what's really like kind of sinister about it is that things like philanthropy are used to kind of cover up. There's the sense that like if you're a do-gooder billionaire, like Sam Bankman-Fried apparently was, that covers up the fact that you're actually like not running a legitimate business and you're not following the SEC. Crypto markets aren't regulated the same way that banks are, but that like philanthropy, there's this subtle like cover up of we're, we're doing good things. And so like, it doesn't matter that this is like an extractive system that it isn't benefiting the majority of people. I like the word cover up of here in this, this episode on complicity because cover-ups happen, but I don't think it's a cover-up. I think it's a PR, it's a psyop, it's PR because really the charities are just their write-offs for their losses. So those are not like, they're not like absorbing risk or doing good so much as they're just offsetting, right? Cash that would be taxed. So the, the philanthropy stuff is a total psyop and I think is a, a sleight of hand in terms of, you know, corporate, accountability. I think though, it's very interesting to watch Mackenzie Bezos give money away because she can't give it away as much as she can make it based on how much she got in the divorce and the assets that she has. And to watch her give it away is every time it's in the news, it's in some ways more shocking to me that one person and their coterie, one white person, a white lady no less, and her coterie could just be like, giving out money that could be used to eradicate so much horrible shit and it's being given away in the least thoughtful way possible right like it's like oprah's giveaway right and you get a hundred million dollars and you get 50 million dollars and you get a car and even though she's looking to give it away to community actors and HBCUs and stuff like that, it is a weird thing to have all that white money going into institutions that the philanthropist, donors, beneficiary of extractive capitalism has no relationship to, right, to control where that money goes. And that's certainly a thing that's happening in higher ed writ large is having all these corporate contributions come in and then the donors try and control what's happening in higher ed, like we saw at UNC Chapel Hill around uh, Hussman and Nicole Hannah-Jones. So the way that monopolies become this insidious force of control and the way that mafia capitalism influences the political, you know, the, the political as a structural space, I think is really where complicity sort of lies. I think what is surprising to me is just how common it is in the workplace. I just see like unethical behavior. I've seen unethical behavior in every job I've had, like period. And I think there's this sense in which like speaking up makes you seem like a squeaky wheel or puts you at risk. I think a lot of complicity comes from how precarious 
most people are. I mean, that's by design, right? A precarious workforce is one that is not likely to challenge decision-making. And so not only is there like a lack of oversight at the top, most boards are like homogenous. They're all white men, essentially. And they all are typically billionaires who have interests that I would say like aren't shared by most of the workforce. And so I don't know, like it's just the lack of challenging, the lack of organizing a lot of it is is by design. Yeah, it's by design in a bunch of ways, though, right? It's not just by design because workplaces are soul-sucking spots. It's also by design because civic education sucks and has been vacated of any real political potential because of the religious rights, insistence on controlling public school curriculum, public school boards, public schools, oversight of public school curriculum, you know, everything. So that is one aspect. So people are don't have skills. They don't have identification with labor. We don't have a history of a strong labor movement. You know, there there are a bunch of ways in which that's insidious, but I think you're right that the workplace is a troubling place for complicity and there's no shortage of examples of people doing fucking heinous things at work. I'm thinking a lot right now in this political moment about forced teaming and workplace mobbing and just mobbing in general as a way to try and produce consensus to build this notion of, in higher ed we call it collegiality, but um, this idea that everybody's on the same page all the time, there's no conflict, but really the conflict is the thing that's being produced. So I think the workplace mobbing is really how discipline functions in workplaces, especially as anti-Blackness and as anti-LGBTQ sentiment. I think these anti-trans laws are a form of workplace mobbing in legislatures where they're looking for scapegoats and victims who are easy targets to punish. And those are mostly queer kids. And, you know, it just seems to me that the social structure is pivoting so hard towards authoritarianism. And I think that the general population, while they seem to have some grasp on that, has no historical or philosophical sensibility about fascism to help them make different choices away from complicity, either with mafia capitalism and oligarchy and monopolies, or even in the macro spaces of their jobs and their you know workplaces. They don't have a sensibility about how to forestall, undermine, destroy, disrupt. They just don't have a sensibility about that because they're comfortable. Like the unemployment rate is so low, even the wages are low. You know, unemployment is so low, even though inflation is high. Unemployment is so low, even though a lot of those people, especially poor people, are working multiple jobs and the wages are not keeping up with inflation or costs. So I just think that people don't have a sensibility about how to disrupt the forced teaming and the complicity that controls most of the decisions that they feel like they're making in the workplace. I mean, I, I don't think that they want to disrupt in a lot of cases Agreed. because I think a lot of the complicity is surrounding comfort. It's people who would rather just, I mean, are willing to like grind essentially because it means they can go home and, you know, watch Netflix and it is easier to do like the exterior parts of life than it used to be. It's easier to shop. (laughs) Like there are like a lot of conveniences of capitalism, essentially, that 
have reduced like people's exposure to other people. Eliminated a lot of like public events. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And public transport. I just I just think a lot about the South and why it doesn't have public transportation and how much you know car culture is about segregation. Like not just from a we built this highway and disrupted your black neighborhood and stratified the wealth this way. Not just because this is where the suburbs are, where the white people, you know, had white flight from the cities, but in this fundamentally, we don't want to mix. We don't want racial mixing. We do not want to be proximate to people who are different than us. I mean, all of that is tied into comfort, white comfort. I think about like narratives also that, contribute to the sense of comfort and also the lack of like agitation i would say i think there are narratives of resilience that allow us to just say like if things are bad then it's a virtue for you to just suck it up and deal with it and not actually agitate or try and change anything and so even when you're not just like comfortable with the status quo. There's this other narrative that when things are actually bad, that what is personally virtuous is to just deal with it. I think that's right. I'm thinking too about Hollywood as a space for this. You know, I think a lot of people sucked up Weinstein's like harassment and rape stuff and all the rest of them, right? Epstein certain, certainly functioned this way. Um, and went along with it because they wanted their projects greenlit or they wanted to, you know, whatever they wanted. And that produced an entire architecture of complicity that was super, super violent and patriarchal and racist. Surprising nobody, I think, anybody who's in the know. But I also think that, that the limits of complicity are patrolled by violence, perceived violence, actual violence, material violence, economic violence, harassment, sexual assault and rape. There are costs to it that aren't just imagined precarity, which is also, I think you're right, fundamentally a part of the narratives that propel people towards complacency and complicity. But I think about how many extremely wealthy, multi-millionaire men propped up Harvey through all that violence. And Trump. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's and the list is Kavanaugh. It's endless, right? And so I think that there's also a demoralization that people are going through that also then leads them away from agitation because there's so much violence. And, you know, you and I have talked before about how the white status quo's attitude is it to ignore structural violence, right? And to take any kind of disincentive towards disruption as a cue to be quiet. So... That's, it's not a surprise, but I just think that that's what makes the moment right for authoritarian governance structures. Even if people seem to have repudiated some of that in the midterm elections, I do think that the assaults on shared governance and democratic participation and the things that force us to confront difference will just continue. I mean, I think you're on the nose about Harvey Weinstein, because like as those revelations came out, what was so shocking was just how many people had tried to speak up. Like, it's not like no one had a litany. Yeah. It's not like no one had filed complaints. There were dozens, more than dozens of complaints filed with Miramax, filed with Disney. Plenty of actresses were speaking up. Harasser, serial 
rapist. Everyone knew. It was an open secret. Yeah. And so that is what is is really crazy. And also what you're you're right, it discourages agitation because, you know, to a certain extent, he was able to keep the media off his back, even as rumors were circulating by getting them book deals and movie deals or by having like pieces of gossip he could use yeah, as leverage. He bought them. He bought them and he bought the press access. And in some ways, it's the most mundane story, you know, in America is like, you know, super wealthy guy does horrible shit. But also the amount of gaslighting as like cognitive violence is staggering. The, the psyops that he directed from his PR organs against his accusers is absolutely staggering. So I don't think that we can ignore the way that the gaslighting works in workplaces or in the nation as an essential complement to the physical and social violence because it's omnipresent. It's all the time. Yeah. I mean, it, and it wasn't just him, right? Like talent agents were still sending women to his hotel room knowing that like other women that they had sent complained. And so, I mean, like that is, I mean, you draw the parallel with Trump too, right? Like how is that not different from, you know, Lindsey Graham (laughs) basically being like a little speaker box, like reiterating, I mean, like there, the amount of yes people like January 6th could not have happened without an, a staggering number of people either looking the other way or, actively helping to organize it. But the thing that is happening right now is the projection from the fascists onto vulnerable populations that they're scapegoating to justify actual violence and then to do complicity gaining, compliance gaining with their in-groups so that they go out and kill queers and and try and kidnap governors and try and kill the Speaker of the House. I mean, there's no way to not perceive the escalating violence of the moment as a way of trying to build in-group compliance at a time where there is clear pushback from the nation against it. I just think that the pushback is so diffuse and it's hard to know if it will be sustained because there is just so much of it. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the groomer language and about how it's functioning as a way of focusing attention, which is it, obviously it's projection because the grooming and the sex trafficking are happening in the evangelical and Catholic churches so hard, especially in the South. And all of these ministers are publicly being convicted of pedophilia and all of these elected GOP members of Congress or of their state legislatures or right they're elected they're being caught masturbating outside of schoolyards and it's like we see you right the emperor has no clothes but it takes I think a lot of support to say it out loud over and over and over again and today in the news is the story about Jerry Jones the owner of the Dallas Cowboys And all these pictures that have surfaced of him being at the desegregation of Central High School in Little Rock in 1957 and him being part of the angry white mob, which, I mean, surprises me, not at all, given his response to Kaepernick and the way in which athletes have participated in justice initiatives and claims, you know, certainly since Kaepernick took the knee. But that conversation is very interesting because there is still this urge to protect those men everywhere. Like Stephen A. Smith is 
out on ESPN today defending Jones and saying he had no idea. And Michael Harriet has this wonderful thread on Twitter where he's like, here are all the ways in which Jones knew exactly what he was doing and how the social situation in Little Rock in 57 and 58 was such that you could not avoid understanding what was happening. And I, I just think we're in this, you know, feedback loop that tries to defend this heinous participation, complicity in violence, racial violence, especially. I don't, it's like Groundhog Day with this white supremacist stuff. It's constant. It's the same story every time, right? And it's just a whack-a-mole about who the victims are going to be to the structural violence. Yeah, I mean, I think the lack of accountability is the driving force behind a lot of, like, the complicity that is so damaging here, right? So, like, this stuff coming out and immediately people coming to defend Jerry Jones, like... I mean, I people came to defend Brett Kavanaugh. People are came to defend like the actions on January sixth. Like the lack of accountability, I mean, is part of it. And I, I think a lot of people were complicit with things that were like obviously unethical, if not illegal, that Trump did because they didn't think there would be any accountability. Trump was like, I'll pardon you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like there's this like sense of quid pro quo. Yeah, <laughs> nothing bad is actually going to like there's an incentive to act unethically. That's what FTX did. That's what Amazon did. They acted unethically. They were incentivized to act unethically. They have not been held accountable. And that encourages a ton of other unethical behavior. It's just like, I don't see way. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking, you know, about Elon Musk and Twitter and watching him absolutely destroy Twitter And he will never be able to make profit off of Twitter to cover the assets that he leveraged to purchase it. I have never seen a $44 billion meltdown in real time, right? But I am watching it because it is instructive. But I mean, obviously he made a miscalculation, right? And, you know, had to buy the company. But all of the people who are coming out and just leaking his behavior as he's firing all these Twitter employees and employees who work for Tesla and people who work for SpaceX. And it's just the most juvenile, emotionally immature, racist, sexist crap. It is just really gutter stuff. It's There's nothing in it to be proud. There's nothing. There's no ideology in it. It is just fucking tantruming. And I think complicity comes from people's fear of being, you know, the center of the ire of the tantrum very often. I'm thinking, too, about Kanye, who just had a meeting with Trump on the heels of Trump's meeting with Nick Fuentes, who's like obviously a Nazi and proud of it, it would seem. And thinking about the networks of violence and control that produce complicity because it's not like these are isolated people. They are networked and leveraged into complex architectures of assets and PR and liability that are, I think for a lot of people difficult to see, but perhaps being unveiled now in ways that they hadn't maybe, you know, with the robber barons. Or, you know, at mid-century with the ad men in the Cold War. But now it feels like, I don't know, there is some more social awareness. 
about how the networks work together. I just think that the only vocabulary the American people have are conspiracy theories to understand how complicity works in large organizations. So what's interesting about Musk and Kanye and Trump is that they don't, they force complicity by removing people from their orbit that disagree with them. Right. So like groupthink. Exactly. Only the only option. Right. And so there's like part of it is like a conspiracy thing, right? Like everyone is, you yeah. know, if you're <laughs> is out to get me, right? Like Adidas left because <laughs> they don't understand my genius. Right. Like there's this Elon fires anyone who disagrees with him, just fires them. Right. And so Trump. Same thing, I would say. Like the amount of people who he fired uh, in the White House is staggering. And so, I mean, there is a sense in which uh, we have given a lot of, we've given crazy men a lot of power, right? Yes, yes, we have. And then they are, have been able to deploy it. Yeah. It's true though, Laura. It's totally crazy that the, the society is organized this way and people just tolerate this stuff because- It is nonsense. It's just so weak, right? So like the attacks on critical race theory, right? And the attacks on teachers, the attacks on schools. And all of that is so weak because it's like you have no arguments and you have no plan for governance and the emperor has no clothes and people see it. Your power grid fails in the heat and in the cold. You are not managing the governing part well. Obviously, you're not interested in it. You just want to suck all the money out of the system. But... The ability to push back against that, I think, hinges on people's ability to resist. And maybe we can talk about what the opposite of complicity is. Is the opposite of complicity being a traitor to the status quo? A race traitor? A complainant? I mean, I consider myself a complainant. (laughs) I feel like I have some power in that I, like, am not living paycheck to paycheck, right? For the first time in my life, really. And I feel then that I can take whatever risks that I want. I know I have people who will bail me out of jail, right? Yeah, your girl, right here. (laughs) I know if I get fired, I have people who can support me, right? So like, (laughs) there's a sense in which like, I'm willing to complain. I'm willing to, like, I think think it's an ethical obligation, right? Mm -hmm. If you have, if you are able to tolerate risk, it's your ethical obligation to ask questions, to complain, in a way that's solutions oriented, I would say. Like, it's, I don't just like, well, sure, there's some com- complaining that isn't productive necessarily. But also, it's like, hey, I have ideas, right? And when there are situations that I see as like wrong, like, I am not quiet about it um, whenever I can be. Yeah, but you're also not isolated, right? Like, you and I have been collaborating for a really long time. And we are lucky to live in a place where, you know, it's easy to get around. And uh, we've lived here for a long time. We've built really long-term, meaningful friendships with people not at work. And so you actually have a wide network that can do solidarity with you. And I think, I mean, white people do not experience that on the whole. So it's unfamiliar to them to be able to take risks, whether or not they feel comfort because they don't feel like there are people who would stand them financially, socially, emotionally when they do moral things. So, you know, there's a reason why civil rights activists the world over have to train to be an activist, not just because nonviolence is hard because brutality is real, but because there is a huge social emotional cost 
to being the complainant and doing the agitation. And it's not negligible because you are actually, the point is to disrupt power, right? So I think that the only path forward includes more training for people in how to be a complainant in a way that is ethical because the outcome is very often not the amelioration of the harm. And support for people who need to be the complainant. So like bail funds, resources, like mutual aid, anything you can do to support people who you know are being wronged or agree. Like if, you know, there's like the anti-work group on Reddit. If there are ways to be like, yo, this is fucked up. Let's do something about it for you in this case. Like holding more people accountable. (laughs) Uh, The only way you can do that is with networks, right? That's right. Creating those networks is really, really valuable to allow people. I mean, I think agitation is the opposite of complicity. And you you have to have tolerance for risk to do it. And I think you have to have the ability to share. You know, obviously, you and I talk a lot about how power is not equally shared. And certainly me as a Gen Xer, there was no power really shared in my whole generation. Right. And so because no, everybody was a hoarder, but... It seems to me that sharing is an essential quality that white hoarders are not prepared to do, even about the most minute things, but certainly about power as well. So I think that the way out of complicity has to see sharing resources as a priority, like as a skill set to develop. 